Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Alright, this week we are talking to Mike Edwards, frontman of Jesus Jones. Remember Jesus Jones? They broke big in 1991 with their second album, Doubt. And when I say big, I'm talking specifically about the states. And that's an important distinction because it comes up in this conversation. US success versus UK success. But that album, Doubt, had three huge singles off of it. International Bright Young Thing, Real, 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 and of course this classic right here, right now, which reached number two in 1991 and has never really gone away. It's one of those sort of generational anthems and you still hear it all the time, right? Well, after becoming one of the biggest bands of the world, they go back into the studio and they put out their third album in 93 called Perverse and it mightily underperforms. And it's too bad because it's actually really good, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't catch on. Maybe the wave of that sound had gone by then and Jesus Jones sort of drift off into obscurity. It's too bad. They put out another couple albums after that and that was pretty much it. But thankfully Mike has been able to live pretty comfortably ever since because of that success and he deserves it, right? Like I said, right here right now has never gone away. So they still make music on occasion. There's some singles out there on iTunes. They're doing a pledge music campaign right now which he talks about in here. Anyone who listens to the podcast with any regularity probably knows that I, I actually find the underperforming albums more interesting than the successful ones. Because that's the story, right? You've just gone up, you're on this high, and then it kind of crashes down. And so if you listen to our Pseudo Echo episode or our Fee Waybill episode, that's a topic I like to discuss. So we talk about that in here. I gotta admit, I don't love this one. And and I don't know why. I, I I feel like maybe the chemistry is off. I don't, I know I'm not at my best. The day that we had scheduled to do this, my wife and I were doing some remodeling. We were remodeling our bathroom and that was demolition day. And so there was no quiet place to go in the house. So I got in the car and I went out in the driveway. And maybe something about being out of my comfort zone, it shouldn't have, I know how to talk to people, I've done this enough. But for whatever reason, it just, it doesn't quite click. But I want you to hear it anyway because Mike was so great to talk to me. He called me from his home in Dartmoor, England, which is on the southwest coast, I believe. He says it in here. You guys hold a very special place in my heart because it was 1991, and I saw you guys in concert at the Fairgrounds Coliseum in Salt Lake City, Utah. That's where oh, I grew fantastic. Up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was you and Soho, and uh, yeah. uh, such a great show. And within a week or two of that show... Me and the same group of friends, we went to the same place, and we saw EMF and Pop Will Eat Itself. Oh, yeah. And I graduated from high school in 1991, mm -hmm. and a couple weeks after I graduated, I moved to England. And so I feel like those four bands at that moment and in my life, when things are on the cusp of a big change, they were pillars of what the next chapter of music was going to sound like of where my life was going, because you guys were all British. So it just has always kind of held a special place in my heart. Plus, that was an awesome show. All of us got home and went and bought Doubt the very next day and played it to death. <laughs> but anyway, I was thinking, you know, in terms of right here, right now, obviously your biggest song, mm -hmm. it felt like one of those right song, right moments. You know, the end of a decade, the beginning of something else, the Berlin Wall comes down, me mm -hmm. personally changing my personal life. And so it kind of caught on to like a zeitgeist right at that mm. moment, you know. When you wrote it, I mean, I don't know if you knew any of that would happen, that the timing for a song like this would be so perfect. Are there any interesting stories around the 
the writing or recording of that song? Um, I don't know whether they're interesting or not. I mean, I can tell you how it came about and tell you a few things about it. I think, you know, the, the age that I am and the age of the rest of the band are, we've grown up kind of, I, I think the 80s is really the, the, the height of the Cold War. You know, there, there were times when you're thinking, well, you know, this, this everything, our, our, our entire lives, our cities, everything around us could disappear at, at you know, hours' notice. Yeah. So you kind of con- constantly felt that you were living under a, under a, a bit of a threat. So for that, the, the Berlin Wall to come down and what seemed like at the time the end, of the, the end of the Cold War, it was, you know, one of the most incredible things in our lives. It did seem like an amazing time to be alive. And I think you were talking about yeah. the zeitgeist. I think in a way, I think it was quite easy. I don't know, actually. I was going to say it was quite easy to be optimistic about things when things of that magnitude are happening. But, you know, it's also, of course, the year of the first Gulf War. I guess, you know, it's a bit of give and take. But what lyrically, I mean, that's what inspired, well, that's, I was going to say lyrically, no, it's more than that. I'd always like Sign of the Times by Prince. Uh, which obviously yeah. kind of takes the takes the other view. You know, these are desperate times of living, and that's essentially the, the, what what Prince is saying with that. And Francis Skinny Man died of a big disease with a little name. By chance, his girlfriend came across a needle, and soon she did the same. At home, there were seventeen-year-old boys, and their idea fun. Being in a game called the Disciples High on Crack Toting a machine gun church and kill everyone inside you turn on the telly and every other story is telling you somebody died my sister killed a baby cause she couldn't afford to feed and it was sending people to the moon in september my cousin tried reaper for the very first time now he's doing horse it's june There was a cover of that that Simple Minds did in 1989, I think. Yeah. Um, and I really didn't like it. I, I thought not only... I, I didn't enjoy it musically. I didn't, didn't think it was a, ver- a very good cover version. But also I thought that they'd got the zeitgeist wrong. Because here we were with the bowling wall changing and they're singing this song about oh, these desperate, terrible times we're living in. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of basically... I disagreed on a lyrical and uh, musical uh, basis. So I kind of... I was inspired to do my, my own take on things, and the original version of Right Here, Right Now, my demo version, is there's a loop of Sign of the Times, which I just oh, played. Oh, really? Yep, that's the original demo. It has a, a, a bit of Sign of the Times all the way through, a one-bar loop. Strangely, the producer thought that would be a, a really bad idea and made me take it out, but, you know, so oh, I, really? I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Well, um, Okay. Yeah, we well, can Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. I think he, he made the right choice there. I, I'm pretty happy that I'm not paying 50% of the royalties or more to uh, to Prince's yes. estate. The other thing about it as well is uh, you were saying it, it was our biggest song, and from an American perspective, that's absolutely yes, right. That's true. Uh, but a couple of things about that actually. In in the UK, when it I mean, it was taken over to the US 
by some radio DJs on a trip to London. And it had just come out as a single in the UK. At that point, it was, it was a very disappointing single for us because we'd had a couple of top tens already at that point in the UK. Right Here Right Now came out and it reached number 31. So it really wasn't that much of a success. The Americans pick it up, gets played over there, you know, does really well over yeah. there. So the record company in the UK thinks, great, this is really good. We're going to have to re-release it. So they re-released uh-huh. it and it got to number 31 again. So... Um, <laughs> But there's that, you know, um, what, but what I find really interesting, the way that kind of uh, culture, particularly American culture, dominates the world is that it was never a big hit in the UK. It did all right, but it was not That's a big wild. hit. We have much, we have much bigger hits in the UK. However, now in the UK, you know, a quarter of a century on, uh, it's become one of the most celebrated songs that we have. It's kind of, after the yeah. event, it's become yeah. more successful. And I think that's just because of the success in America has kind of boosted its success retrospectively yeah. here. Sure. Well, and it's one of those songs that's evergreen. I mean, it never goes away because you hear it in commercials and in movies and mm. on news events and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's almost a commercial in and of itself. I, I don't mean that as criticism. It's just that you hear it so much, and mm-hmm. it's, it's so indicative of a time and a place I'm curious, and this is if this is too personal, tell me. I mean, could you live off just right here, right now, royalty money for the rest of your um, life? Uh, to, to about 80%, 70%, yeah. Okay. Well, see, that's great. I mean, you created this thing that still, it still talks to people now, 25 years later. That's amazing, right? Yeah, well, I think particularly since uh, right here, right now, is, is still a working title as far as I'm concerned. I wrote the yeah, course and thought... True. I thought, you know, that's that's a horrible set of words. I'll get around to rewriting them later. And I still haven't done it, but, you know, it's not it's not the best title, I'm sure, but it seems yeah. to be working all right so far. Well, it worked out fine. So I what reckon, is your yeah. biggest hit in the U.K. then? What are you primarily known for, and what would you close the show with in the U.K.? Probably Info Frico off um, Liquidizer. Really? big cult hit here, though we could also do it with um, International Bright Young Thing or Real Real Real.
I think Real 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 okay. actually sold more than any other uh, singles of ours in the UK, but the, uh, the, okay. the highest chart placing was for International Bright Young Thing. Interesting. Okay. Now, I want to ask you about Perverse, mm-hmm. because I think Perverse is a great album, and yet it kind of got lost in the shuffle. And I was yeah. wondering if, you know, here you guys had just sort of risen to fame very quickly within about two years, mm-hmm. and... You're prob- I'm, I'm projecting completely, but I'm imagining you sitting at home working on this really good album. You, there's a lot of anticipation because you've just broken through, and you're thinking, this is going to be great. This, we've got good songs. Tons of good songs. We're going to do really well. It's going to continue, and then it comes out, and it doesn't. How do you feel in that moment? You know. Well, I always knew it was a gamble. You know, I mean, that's oh, why really? it's called perverse. Yeah, absolutely. It's called perverse because it was going in a completely opposite direction to the way that the rest of uh, main street rock music was. Uh-huh. Um, you know, rock music was going for this very kind of retrospective. It was the era of grunge, and basically yeah. everyone's kind of going back to the 1970s. I was thinking, oh, I don't really want to do that. You know, I, I, for me, I think there's a much better version, and the way that I'm living, kind of my lifestyle or the, my taste at the moment, are completely different from that. And the music I'm going to make is going to represent that. But it was a gamble. You know, the clever thing to have done would have been, you, you know, um, Blur's song two, uh huh, the yeah. woohoo song. I mean, sure. that was that that was them thinking, hang on a minute, everyone's doing this kind of heavy metal style 1970 stuff. We should give that a go for the sake of our career as well. And they did it, yeah. and it was hugely successful and, you know, good for them. For me, I thought, that's not what I want to do. I actually want to do something completely different. And in my mind, you know, before I'm thinking, and I'd like to do completely the wrong thing, it's going to go fantastically well despite that. You know, uh-huh. perversely, uh-huh. it's going to be a big hit. But, you know, uh-huh. it's a gamble. Some gambles, uh, uh-huh. you know, work out, some don't. Interesting. So you went into it knowing that this may be a risk. Yes, that absolutely. it may or may yeah. not work out. Yeah, really, that's but, really interesting to me. Well, you, you know, I, I felt kind of as, as an artist of sorts, as a, as a creative musician, um, I had to do something that, that I believed in. You know, yeah. I would not have felt good 
kind of coming up with trying to emulate Nirvana and trying to do a, yeah. a, an album like that. That would have betrayed all that we'd done up to that point. Now, I mean, obviously we look back with over 20 years of hindsight and wisdom to acquire kind of a perspective like that. Did you mm-hmm. have that perspective even then? I mean, like we've said, you, you took a risk. When it wasn't working out or if it didn't work out as quite as well as you wanted it to, was that okay? Were you kind of thinking, well, it's okay, we'll get him next time? Not <laughs> no, not really. No, it was immensely okay. disappointing, you know, because I, I put my heart and soul into that, and I, I believed in it totally. Yeah. And I was very unhappy that it didn't work out and, you know, that it was essentially the kind of the end of our, our career, really, or our, our kind of successful career. So, yeah, you know, you, 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 can't, you can't be happy about that. But nonetheless, right. um, it's an album I'm still, still proud of, and I don't, yeah. think I, w- I don't think I would change it. Um, okay, good. You know, life good. was, life was uh, yeah, not so amazing at that point that I, I, it was worth doing absolutely anything at all. Have you been able to, this entire time, maintain a living as a, music, as a musician? Yes, or were yeah. you, did you do other things or anything like that? Uh, this, this, I have, thankfully, as you say, you know, right here, right now, I, I've just approved it for another couple of adverts somewhere. So, good, you know, it, it keeps ticking over. And obviously, that's the same in, in Australia as it is in the UK, as it is in America, as it is in South Korea, as it is in Japan. You get the idea, you know. Yeah, it's not, it's not a fantastic living, but, you know, right. it's, kind of, yeah, it's, it's good enough. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, I think I read in an interview you did that you, your main goal or your the big wish was if you could just make a living as a musician mm. and you've been able to do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It feels more like that when we go on tour. It's one of the reasons I love touring because it makes me think actually, yeah, I'm not just sitting at home messing around on computers, which is often yeah. what writing is. You know, I'm actually right. in front of people playing this stuff and the people seem to appreciate it. Uh, I quite like touring for that reason. It does make me think like I'm, I'm still a working musician. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. When you get creative now and you, because I know you guys are kind of in the mode now of putting out EPs. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I should say, for anyone who doesn't know, How's This Even Going Down, which is a new song of yours you guys released last year. Well, I know what this looks like But I sold that motorbike At your as anything you've ever done okay I, I bet, well i i just it's it's like hearing from an old friend you know it's like oh yeah. great jesus jones is still out there and they're still good and they're still doing it that's what it feels like hearing songs like that so when you get creative now do you feel like you have an outlet to get that music out or do you have to kind of like well you know i don't know who will even listen it costs too much money to work on an album it's really just easier to go out on tour. Where do you, when you, when you have to kind of prioritize now, how do you do that? 
Well, it has been. We've been in that difficult situation that, that legacy bands, as, as I believe the term is for, for acts like us, you have this problem where some, some of the songs you know, you've been playing, playing for a quarter of a century or more, and you don't really even need to rehearse them. Uh, it's fine when you play them live, but often we say, all right, should we do this song or that song in rehearsal? And everyone looks at each other and just goes, no, let's not bother. Can't be bothered with that yeah. one. To be able to do something new uh, is, is very attractive. However, at the uh -huh. same time, it's uh, you know the, 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 it's those words that cause the, the mass exodus to the bar whenever you say, "Here's yeah. something from the new album," and you know mm -hmm. the venue empties as, as people run uh -huh. out and do something else. So you know it is difficult. I know that people want to want to hear old stuff, but at the same time, we've got to keep ourselves happy as well. But you know, hopefully, I, I think we can kind of keep people interested in, in new stuff too. But sure. yeah, it's, creatively, yes, I do need to, to be writing music. I can't just play the old stuff. That that yeah. isn't creatively fulfilling, at least not to a, 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 a large degree. But I do think that touring gives me an insight into writing. You know, it yeah. especially with the way we are now. I know the kind of venues we're going to go and go out and play. I, I actually kind of tailor the writing to some extent to the to those venues. I'm thinking, okay, if we're going to be oh, playing in it, if we're going to be playing in, in fairly small venues. It's got to be something that's immediate and uh, hits you pretty hard. You know, I, I can't be doing self-indulgent seven-minute songs like like yeah. some of the ones on, on Perverse. That makes a lot of sense. Now, aren't you guys, are you working on new music now and there's going to be a pledge music campaign going Absolutely, on? Absolutely, yes. current state? Yeah. So tell me, about, tell me about the future. Tell me what's happening right now. Sure, well, actually, right I'm right sit, sitting in front of my com computer screen, and I, and I have a new song up there. And the moment I put the phone down, I'm going to be going back to working on that. Yeah, we've, uh -huh. uh, on Pledge Music, it's pledgemusic.com slash Jesus Jones. It's, uh, it's a way for people to get involved with the album and actually hear what's going on with it, kind of, you know, week by week, and do a little update. I've just started doing the updates with kind of, not so much outtakes, but I'm just... There are different versions of songs and vi little videos. I just made a video of the making of one of the, the songs recently. Okay. But w one thing I particularly like as, as a you know, music fan myself is hearing different versions of songs or hearing stuff within mm -hmm. songs you've never heard before. And I think particularly with, with our stuff, because I think for better or worse, the, the songs that Jesus Jones make are, are very, very dense there's an awful yeah. lot of stuff going in there. It's not like it's, it's the police. You know, you listen to yeah. a, re a record by the police, and there they are. There's the three instruments with a, with a singer right. on top. There's no mistaking it. There's a load of stuff in ours. And I think bringing yeah. out these kind of different versions gives people a real insight in, into the way that our sound is created. Like when, when you hear it as just a, a three-piece band or you hear the kind of the synth parts on their own, it, it kind of, right. I think, enriches your experience of, of the full version further down the line. So we're doing yeah. a lot of that kind of stuff, really unusual stuff, uh, insights into the making of the songs, and there's all sorts of little bits and pieces that that we do. You know, we kind of uh, yeah. tell different things like handwritten lyrics and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay. You know, Jesus Jones' sound is so specific and so singular. I mean, at the time even, I'm guessing you're taking influences like Happy Mondays or, you know, the baggy scene or whatever, and you're kind of pumping it full of steroids with sampling and techno beats and all this kind of stuff. And that seems to have been sort of your style throughout. Do you ever feel hemmed in by your style? Or do you feel like you have the, the kind of movement or the freedom to experiment when you want to and the crowds will be there? How does it feed your creativity, I guess? Hmm. I, I, don't, feel, I don't feel hemmed in at all. In fact, the, 
the the only way that perhaps in the past I've kind of felt restricted is knowing that when we go out and play, there's going to be two guitarists, a keyboard player, a bass player, and a, and a drummer. And sometimes I thought, well, I'm, I'm trying to create parts there because those people in the band. And that's that I think does become a bit of a burden. And in fact, in fact, our, our drummer was saying to me recently, you know, if you you should not worry about that kind of stuff. If you if you've got yeah. a type of sound you want to do, you should just go ahead and do it. So, you know, I probably sacked him from the band and then making a drum-free album. But, but no, it's, right. an, it's an interesting point. I, one thing I would say is that I don't think that our, our sound has, has stayed the same. I, I think no, that... No, I mean, it's so, an updated version of what Jesus Jones does well. Yeah, yeah I mean, because yeah. I, th- I think our sound was always about a, a kind of ethic of, of hmm. being at heart a songwriting rock band but with yeah. all this kind of new digital stuff kind of yeah. as an integral yeah. part well, of it. Right. But that, that digital yeah. side of things is constantly changing. And the influences yeah. that I'm working on now are massively different, even from influences I had five years ago. So as a result, our sound always always updates. But do I feel hemmed in by, by doing that? No, not really, because that's what I like to do. Um, okay. That's what makes me, makes me feel happy doing that kind of thing. To make an out-and-out out rock record... I would not find very satisfying, and I think if I were to make just a straightforward dance record or electronic yeah. uh, album, I don't actually think I'd be very good at that. So it suits me trying to. I think it plays to my strengths to to do yeah. a little bit of both. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm always curious how people uh, feel about sort of the genre that they've been put in, and if they like it there. For instance, I mean, I've done about a hundred of these, and I've talked to some people. For for instance, recently I spoke with the lead singer of Book of Love, the the synth pop band from the eighties. Right. I don't know if you remember yeah. them. And I we do. We were yeah. talking about okay, good. So her name's Susan, and she and I were talking about whether whether she ever feels like, because once you've sort of made a name for yourself as being a specifically synth pop band, people expect you to perform all your songs on synthesizers, yeah, on keyboards. And, yeah. and anything outside of that might feel too foreign to people. And I always wonder if that kind of stifles people's creativity. But it sounds like Jesus Jones is a, an example of, of your creativity, your interest in technology and what's new and merging that technology with actual instruments and rock music and how they work together. Now, hopefully I'm saying this right. Yeah, that's true, and that's one of the reasons why I mean, you mentioned that baggy scene earlier on, which I, I felt absolutely nothing in common with, I have to say. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, well, I, mean, I just assumed dance music like that was kind of influent. You were an extension of that. Uh, you see, the, 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 the way I view it is that that stuff kind of came after us, and they did it, mm. they did it badly. We were not the first. I would say that the predecessors really for us would be the Age of Chance from the early 80s, the Shaman, who are a massive uh, influence on us. And there's a lot of stuff like kind of bomb the bass. But all of those bands use the technology of dance music. The thing about baggy music, uh, all that kind of that, that indie stuff from, from Manchester uh-huh. from, from the uh, early 90s, they didn't use any of the technology. They just changed the beat a little bit. It was yeah, still the same right, okay. kind of... 1960 style songs but with a slightly different beat and for me that completely missed the point and i i really didn't like being lumped in with that kind of stuff i kind of felt that i had an entirely different outlook from them um really yeah so being being thought of as part of that and also it did get quite annoying being from uh one of the biggest cities in the world and the biggest city in in the uk 
to go to t- uh, town after town in America, and people say, "Ah, oh, you're from Manchester, right?" And we say, "No, we're from this little place called London that you might have heard of." <laughs> That's true. Yeah, suddenly Manchester was taking everything over. Where are you now, by the way? Where do you live? Where? Am, where uh, well, I I live in the southwest of England. I live in a, a fantastic place called Dartmoor, which is one of the very kind of uh, wild, remote places. It's Hound of the Baskervilles territory. Ah, there you go. Okay. Hmm. But the, the rest uh, of the band okay. are kind of split up all over the place. Three of them uh, live, uh, still live kind of in and around London. But then our bass player lives in Chicago these days. Well, he's lived there for, oh, I guess, wow. 20 years now. Oh, interesting. Now, when you guys were at kind of the height of your powers there in the early 90s, did you ever relocate to L.A. or anything like that? Or were you always a U.K.-based band? No, uh, I, I was always, for me, it was very much about London. I, I felt okay. London was was the center of things. And I think particularly because of, I felt the focus on uh, electronic dance music was a very European kind of thing. I know it's ironic yeah, that so much of it was based in, in kind of the house music of Chicago in the 80s. It's what British bands have always done, that, that they've kind of taken American influences and put their own kind of spin on it. And I felt that, <clears throat> felt that London was extremely important. Uh, it was a very, very important part of, of, of what we did, being in that city with, with that, those kind of influences. It would have been a disaster for us had we moved to Los Angeles or, or New York okay. or something like that. Because I, okay. when, when I visited America, which you know I loved every time we did it, there was a very different view of music, and it didn't oh, sit yeah. with my own. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Huh. Now, uh, do you ever play the States anymore? Uh, we'd love to. Um, we haven't done in a while. The problem is that it's actually prohibitively expensive for yeah, small bands to come there. I'm not sure if uh, people in America know, but if you apply for a, a work visa as a band, I think it's currently, or at least a few years ago, it was $3,000 just to apply for the visa application. Oh. So that's before you even <laughs> think about booking plane fi- flights and yeah. hotels and stuff like that. It sucks in the way that for American bands doing the same thing, it costs $55. So it's yeah. a little unequal there, I'd say. Yeah, but, um, no kidding, right? Yeah, I mean, that, so the problem that we have is in order to make back the money to actually make not be in debt when we, when we play yeah. America, we have one of two options. Either play the kind of huge festival where they pay you a lot yeah. of money, of course, everyone's after those dates. Sure. Or we have to go over there for kind of two, three, four months at a time. And, you know, these days with the band kind of having kids and families, all, all this sure. kind of stuff, people aren't really willing to do it anymore. It's different when yeah. we're all in our, our mid-20s. That's what it was all about. You know, that's what we did. And so we, we would tour sense. America for, for six weeks, two months, whatever. But it's different yeah. now. You know, doing a three-month tour of the U.S. isn't really acceptable for us anymore. I was going to ask you about these festivals because obviously 80s focus festivals are huge. All over the world, they're, they're huge. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, not, if we're quite there with 90s sounds just yet in terms of nostalgia tours being as big a deal. Do you get invited to play on some of these festivals? And if you do, how often and what usually is the category of music that is being played there? Um, well, you're asking the wrong person to some extent, but as far as I'm aware, we don't actually get asked to do this kind of stuff. Oh. Yeah, so I, I can't really answer your question just because, huh. uh, okay. you know, uh, we, 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 I don't think, and we, we've done some festivals, but they're more kind of smaller things in the UK that aren't really themed in that way. Okay, um, okay. So, yeah, sorry, I can't answer you. Don't, okay. Can't answer that one. No, that's okay. I wondered if there was some kind of, like, 90s now, you know, con- nostalgia tour or something like that that's really big 
somewhere, and you guys get invited to play it a lot with EMF and Soho and all these people. I think that kind of thing has been talked about in the past. Um, okay. been a, I think there've been a, a few things, a few suggestions of, of that kind of thing. You know, do, doing doing a tour with with bands like that r- rather than yeah. actual festivals. But it comes back to the same thing. They, they you know, the yeah. uh, the promoter will say, in order to make it work, I need you guys out here for two and a half months. And yeah. at that point, you know, it doesn't matter who it is, who it is, it'll be the same for the guys in EMF as it will be for us, and probably sure. for you know, any other bands we toured with. It's just not practical. Yeah. Well, I think it's a matter of time, honestly, before 90s nostalgia tours start taking over as well. And then you're going to have a whole new resurgence and revenue stream and being able to play <laughs> those kinds of things all over the place, too. Just like a lot well, of the great 80s bands do. I think Maybe the you thing don't is, want to. I don't know. No, no, I, I do. And the, the point I was going to make is that it's it's really I'm, what I'm not saying is that we'll never play the U.S. again. Um, uh-huh. I think it's just a case we haven't had the right offer yet. Um, yeah, but it will yeah, come, I'm pretty certain of that. I mean, we've toured there so much in the past, and it's not that we don't want to. You know, we'd, we'd love to right. come back there again. I always love, right. I love touring, touring full stop, but I also yeah. love touring America, particularly those, yeah. those Western states like, like Utah. <laughs> you know, yeah. That always appealed that to me so a lot. Fun. Yeah, that, that was such a great show. So you've got to tell me some of the stories from the height of Jesus Jones. I mean, when you look back on your almost 30-year career now, what are just the best memories that pop to your mind? Did you meet heroes? Did you play a particularly incredible show? Was it watching your songs rise up the charts? What, what's the be- what are the best memories? Tell me some stories about the good times. Well, starting on a small scale, I suppose, uh, you know, we've been in London for quite a few years and, and trying to get a break and trying to get a record deal, and it all, all seemed so far away. And then when it did start to happen, it, everything happened very quickly within the space of a few months. And I remember just a small gig in London, about you know three or four hundred people, but quite an important one, right in the centre of town. And we were suddenly uh, big names in the press. The music press started writing about us. We were we were the new band to see, and we'd gone from in the space of a month playing to kind of you know like about four of our friends and about four of their friends that they brought with them. So you know almost no people to having a line of people around the block coming to see the show. And at that yeah. point, that was incredibly exciting, thinking, actually, more than, anything, it's just, more than anything else, feeling justified, thinking, yeah, you know, I yeah. knew we had some good yeah. ideas about music. I knew there we were on the, on the right track with this. On a grander scale, I think we played Wembley Stadium in 92. We were supporting uh, In Excess. And that was uh, oh. 72,000 people. Uh, and that, that was an incredible experience. When your front row is a hundred feet away from you, yes. you, you can you can barely even see the front row. You know, it's, it's a gig that's that big. So you know that was really quite something. I mean, I suppose there was a very a very early tour of the U.S. in 1990 where we flew out to Los Angeles, uh, which was still very new and, and strange to us then. And I think the day after we got there, we were doing a, a radio station session. And that felt very strange, you know, kind of fresh off the plane from, sure. from London, being in a studio yeah. in Los Angeles, um, you know, doing a live broadcast. That that was really interesting. I can remember, yeah. and this is an insight into why I actually can't remember a lot of stuff. Uh, lot uh-huh. of, when I get asked this question, people were surprised that I don't really remember much. But it's because, and this, this story actually highlights why. I remember once being in um, a hotel in, in Rio de Janeiro, doing interview after interview after interview in this hotel room. You know, it's great. That, oh, that's boy. what I was there to do. And looking out yeah. the window, 
and seeing the rest of the band all lying on these deck chairs by the pool with cocktails <laughs> in their hands. You know. So yeah. they're actually the ones who have the stories because they had a lot of time to kill. For me, it was just, you know, <laughs> interviewing, gigging, that's about it. Oh, man. Oh, that's kind of a tragic image, actually. That sucks. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, it's the price you pay for putting good music out in the world, I guess, man. <laughs> yeah. Dude. I didn't mind it, though. I didn't mind. Did Did you ever meet any heroes? I mean, do you y- have, yeah. I mean, who were your musical heroes, I guess, at that point? Um, well, actually, a, a lot of my musical heroes tended to be people kind of much further down the scale, some people that you, that you almost certainly never heard of. I mean, the, the night like we did who? a gig with um, uh, World Domination Enterprises, that was a massive deal for me. Our first wow. proper tour was with The Shaman, and they were a huge influence sure. on us, and I was I was yeah. very honored to do that one. I think the second yeah. tour was with, was with The Wonder Stuff, and The Wonder Stuff were a, a big uh, influence on us. The Wonder and, Stuff. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, that was really good. I got to meet Debbie Harry in New York, and that was really quite something. I, I, I loved uh, Blondie's early singles. You know, I thought that was just yeah. superb. And it was very interesting to meet her. So I think, other than that, you know, I think Jimi Hendrix wasn't around, obviously. Um, yeah, so I right. didn't get to meet him. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, other influences? I don't know. I d- Michael Stipe from REM. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I had a chat with him. Um, cool. But, yeah. No, That's generally, great. no, no. I would say that I didn't kind of, didn't get to meet any, any uh, big names. I wasn't. I wasn't really into that kind of thing, in all honesty. Yeah. I, and I, I hated that thing of all... You're in town. This other guy's in town. We should get you guys together. That that uh, yeah. I never liked that yeah. at all. It was always it felt so, so false unnatural. and put up. Yeah. Yeah, and I kind of felt you know if I'm I'd rather just kind of choose my own friends or bump into my friends or create them yeah. naturally rather than you know have, have yeah, something I like agree. that happen. I agree. I got to ask you about the Shaman because you've mentioned them a couple of times. Mm. And when, they were one of those bands when I moved to England in '91. Mm. It was the summer of Brian Adams. And right, everything yeah. you do, I, everything I do, I do it for you or whatever. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. It was like number one for four months or something. And <laughs> yeah. I remember watching the chart show every Saturday morning to see what number one was going to be. And there were all these songs that didn't make it because that song blocked them. Well, one yeah. of the songs that was big at the time was Move Any Mountain mm-hmm. by The Shaman. I will not fail, no falter, I shall succeed. My perception is altered, I do believe Faith is so strong, now nothing shall bar my way From conviction, no fiction, this is my day
British music at that time because I live there and I have an interest. But common yeah. regular Americans, if they know a shaman song, that's it. Right. So how were they influenced? Had they been around for a long time and influencing you and sort of showing you what's possible musically? What are you getting from Shaman and how far back is it going? Um, yeah, I, I was seeing them and I guess something like 87, something like that, that okay. kind of time. Okay. I think they released their first uh, first album or first singles in something like 85, 86. It was around that kind of time anyhow. And okay. Okay. they were doing the kind of thing I talked about already. They were... They were, they had that kind of strong '60s psychedelia feel to them, that kind of acid rock thing. But they were using um, hip hop beats and they were using technology along with that, and that for me was an eye opener. I mean, seeing them, I thought this is really interesting. Yeah, I've never heard yeah. stuff like this before, but it still appeals to me. It still has that way of hooking me in because it's not totally unusual. You know, it's not, it's not yeah. totally out of my realm of knowledge. Um, there okay. were things later on that, that were that I enjoyed, but The Shaman just basically, you know, I don't mean in, in kind of, you know, I listened to one of their songs and wrote a song of mine based on one of theirs. I, I don't no. mean that at all. I mean, their approach, their technology yeah. and traditional yeah. songwriting, that was, a, that was a big moment for me, uh, being yeah. aware of that. I absolutely hear that. Yeah, I could hear that. Okay, interesting. Uh, so one other thing, now, Already is the Jesus is kind of the lost Jesus Jones album for yeah. Americans anyway. They yeah. probably don't even know it's out there. And it's also really good. I had read somewhere that at the time you guys were, and I hope this isn't too drawing on bad memories or whatever, but I had, I read that you guys were, you guys were providing a lot of music to your record label, and it was all being rejected. And the only thing that sort of made it through was the already material. Is that right? That's not quite the, the case. No. Um, okay. What happened was that there, there was a a different version uh, of the album oh. a year or so beforehand. There are, there are a number of problems with that, that album, which were not to do with the music. Um, after Perverse uh, didn't set the world alight, I think the record company were looking for the surefire hit. And no one actually knows what a surefire hit is until after the, uh, after sure. the act, until after it happens. They would say, oh, I don't think this is it, you know, do it again. So yeah. we recorded an album once, and then we recorded it again. Um, which went on for ages, and to be honest, it was that was a huge mistake. Because oh, if you haven't got the material there and then, yeah. you get that album out, get another one written to, to come up with it. You know, to, to find the material, it's a big mistake yeah. to work on the same material over and over again. Right. Um, you know, the band gets bored out of their minds uh, for, sure. for a start. Over. 
The other massive problem that we had that goes back to why that why so many people in the U.S. might not have heard of it, it was that album was due for release in something I don't know. It, it, one summer, I remember it, and I think the week before it was due to be released on EMI North America, EMI North America folded. Um, oh. All the staff woke up in the morning, switched oh, on the news, and found they didn't need to go into work that day, um, oh, wow. which is you know really terrible for them. It wasn't brilliant for yeah. us because you know we we had an album that was all set to launch, and then yeah. that's it; it was gone. We had we had no American label, um, yeah. so so that that oh, album was okay. kind of doomed because of that. I think. Okay, based on what I was reading, I was envisioning you guys sending songs to a label and them just saying nope, nope, nope. And and having to, and finally something broke through with already, but it sounds like they were just wanting you to just keep reworking the same songs, which you're right. I don't think that ever that almost never works. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you know that they, they were they were pretty scared that one of their their biggest acts didn't have yeah. the surefire hit. You know, but when they signed us, we didn't have the surefire hit either. It's just one of yeah. those things. You, you you trying to trying to second guess the public is is a uh, sure cool. sure. You mentioned Surefire Hit, and that was something I wondered about also in terms of Perverse, because, I, you know, right here, right now, and Real, 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 an international bright young thing, are probably the poppiest songs off of Doubt. or techno sounding they kind of right. you know what i'm saying they they're, they're uh-huh. probably the more most kind of amenable to a pop music station and i wonder and perverse as much as i like it doesn't have anything i don't think anyway quite as quite as easy going as those songs might have been were you right. under any kind of pressure at the time when you turned in perverse this same kind of pressure that you were getting for already are, is the label like I don't hear another international bright young thing on here. Yeah, no, I, I think the thing was that um, at that point, you know, Perverse hadn't done badly, so there was still sure. a lot of confidence. I think everyone felt oh, okay. very confident in the album, and whilst it, there weren't the out-and-out pop hits, there were still some strong songs, you know, things like Zeros okay. and Ones, for example. So, you know, pe- people thought that there was there were some good songs there, 
even if they weren't as poppy. But it was, I think it was also felt it was a good time for us not to be quite as poppy as we had been, because um, yeah. people were kind of thinking of us in those terms. So, yeah, you know, I, I think it was only, only after having had their fingers burned, they then yeah. thought, hang on a second, we really better focus on this and, and make sure this is a, a, a nice poppy album, which I, I think, okay. you know, again, is a bit of a mistake. I think you make the album that you want to make, uh, yeah. And then it does well or it doesn't doesn't do well, but you then go back and uh, make another one afterwards. Yeah, is it true that I keep reading that that was like the first re- album ever fully recorded on computer? Is that true? Um, I, no, I, I think that that's what that's a Chinese whisper version of it. Um, there've been plenty of, <laughs> plenty of other albums recorded uh, digitally beforehand. Yeah. But what I wanted to do was was make a, a rock album that didn't have any acoustic in, instruments on it at all. Oh, so okay. it was kind of if Kraftwerk, rather than making their kind of proto techno, had decided to try and make a rock music, rock album, yeah. it, I wanted to be like that. So the guitars aren't actually guitars, the drums aren't right. actually drums. You know, it was a, a purely synthetic record, if you like, uh, and that was important to me. And I felt it was the first rock album that was made in that way. I wasn't aware okay. of any other album that that was done like that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Every time I read about Perverse specifically, it always mentions that. I think could that possibly be true? I don't know. <laughs> unless that's just something you know people want to attach uh, after the fact, like an urban legend or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I should really just keep saying yes, shouldn't I, and, and let the urban legend <laughs> grow. Okay. Well, look, this was a lot of fun. I, I I want to ask you just a couple more questions. Number one, when you look back over your career. And what a great career that you're still out there. You're still able to make music and that be your primary focus. Wait, uh, do you have any regrets? Is there something that you, when you look back and you think, because there's been ups and downs with Jesus Jones. Do you ever look back and think, oh, if we hadn't just done that thing, something might have worked out differently? No, because I think life is life is pretty good now. I, I'm I'm kind of happy with it, the the life that I have, the friends that I have, all that kind of thing. And I think if I changed anything in the past, then I wouldn't be where I am now, and I'm quite happy with that. There's always the the, the career question. You know, had I maintained my career, you know, had uh, Perverse been a bigger album than Doubt, et cetera, et cetera, uh, would I be any happier? No, to be honest, I think I'd probably be worse because having experienced. Yeah the rock star lifestyle, it wasn't really for me. I wasn't very good at it. I didn't fit mm. in there. And I'm a lot happier now than I was in, in the summer of 91 or 92. So no, I, I right. don't have any don't have any regrets at all. Cool. I think uh, maybe not. Uh, actually, I, I think I'd like to, I'd like to re-record Doubt. I think I did a shoddy job. Really? Yeah, yeah. But really? So much of it sounds really shoddy and, and hastily done. I'm not particularly happy mm. with the recording of, of Liquidizer. I think... Actually, that's unfair. I think Craig Leon did a brilliant job producing the tracks that he had, um, uh-huh. but I, I think I was actually quite difficult to work with, really. I'd like the songs to appear more like the demos that I had, which I'm sure would sound far less commercial. So, no, you know, I, I'm really, I'm clutching at straws because I, I just don't really okay. have any proper no, regret. But in general, it sounds like you're pretty content. You've had a good life and you're fine with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know, it all sounds a bit smug when you say that, don't you? But you know, it's uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I live in a fantastic place. Um, I have fantastic right. family and friends. Uh, I'm st- Are still you making music. Do you have kids or anything? Yeah, yeah. All of the above. Okay. Yeah. Oh, good for you. I don't. I mean, I don't know if you even know this, but the the main kind of focus of this podcast is how legacy acts kind of maintain per, uh, careers in music, right? Mm. So. In, in a lot of cases, I talk to people who 
were far less successful than you. They put out one album in 1981, and hmm. that's it. And I'm always yeah. just interested in what the what their stories are. You know, what's the perspective? How did you feel when it went up? How did you feel when it came down? How yeah. do you look at it back at it now? And so I think your perspective on this is hugely refreshing because it's it's the perspective of an artist who got what they deserved. You get this great life because you wrote good music that still stands the test of time, and you deserve to be happy for that. And that's exactly what you got. I think that's well, amazing. Though, though, to be fair, I mean, I, I think it's it's a little easier for me because unlike a band, say, who, who uh, recorded an album in 1981, you use your example, I think we experienced the, the full rock and roll fame thing. You know, we, we were a, a pretty big act at, at the time. You know, we employed lots of people and did world tours and that kind of thing. I think if you, if you just had the one album that's given you a, a taste of that, and not right. enough time to experience all the negative side. You'd always be thinking, "What if?" You know, I, yeah, I'm sure I could have. I enjoyed it more. Whereas, you know, I felt I, I enjoyed it. I, I, I enjoyed it, and then it got to the point where there are a lot of elements that I didn't really like at all. Mm. You know, I didn't like not not being able to just go and do the shopping and not be hassled by people all the yeah, time. Right. Um, right, right. And just right. the fact that you know people would stop and stare at you in the street and yeah. stuff like that. And then people actually, you know, if they didn't like you, their, your music, would would think that was a good enough reason to be rude to you in the street. No. You know that yeah, that, that kind true, of stuff. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I remember one classic time actually just waking. We we driven overnight in America. and We woke up in San Francisco at, at, at something like eight o'clock in the morning, and you know I could never sleep properly in tour buses because the, the beds uh-huh. in those things were like little coffins. Um, right. So I was only getting a kind of a couple of hours sleep a night, something like that. And you wake up and you stumble out, and you know your hair is pointing in several different directions, uh-huh. as are your eyes, and you you feel like death. And I get up right. and I stand up, you know, and there's some guy that straight away just lays into me about how Jesus Jones suck and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm thinking, you know, I've, I've just what? woken up, you know, after a couple of hours of sleep. Just, yeah, fine. Dude. Whatever you like. Good. Oh, now go away. So, so I don't miss oh, that wow. kind of thing at all, you know. Yeah. Oh, man. I guess when you put something out in the world, you open yourself up for everyone's thoughts and opinions about it, you know. Well, that's, that's and you the. you uh, deal with it. That's, that's Twitter and Facebook, isn't it? And the comments on yeah, YouTube very videos. True. Very, yeah. very true. Very true. Well, look, you're a survivor. You've gotten what you deserve. You're a great songwriter and a great band. And I'm really happy for you. And you were a pivotal band at a pivotal time in my life. And I'll never forget it. And so I'm really thankful that you talked to me, Mike, because I, I think you guys are great. And I'm really happy that you've been able to take advantage of the success that you've achieved because you deserve it. Well, that's very kind of you. Thanks very much. There you have it, Mike Edwards. I wish I felt better about that one. I don't know what it was. I couldn't quite, I couldn't find the hook or the angle. I couldn't quite get in there and really like elevate the conversation the way that I really wanted to. Maybe it was a lack of chemistry. Maybe I was just, I feel like I sound so bush league. I don't know what it is. I know better than that. It just, I've been sitting on this interview for months actually, and I almost didn't put it out, but I thought I wanted you to hear what a nice guy Mike was, and I wanted you to remember what a great band Jesus Jones was. I felt like it would be a waste not to put it out. Anyway, I hope you got something good out of that. Hope you'll forgive me, and you'll come back next week. Uh, I, anyone who listens regularly knows I'm better than this. Uh, anyway, next week's guest is going to be really interesting, actually. The five most commonly requested guests that we ever get are The Sundays, The Ocean Blue, 
Voice of the Beehive, Sandy Soraya, and Mr. Mister. But in no particular order, those are the five most common people that we get requests for. And next week is going to be one of those people. So I hope you'll come back for that. Also, I had made such a big deal about Perverse and what a great album that is. This is another song off Perverse. It's called The Devil You Know. I hope you enjoy it. And you know the business by now. Find us on Twitter, at The Hustle Pod. Like us on Facebook. Stay in contact that way. You can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. And a couple people have been writing reviews on iTunes lately. Bless your little hearts. That means a lot to me. They were good ones, too, which you didn't have to do that, but thank you. And anyone who else who listens with any regularity, please write a little something on there, good or bad. It would mean a lot. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makiewicz for everything you do. Thank you, buddy, for your help. And uh, we will see you guys all next Tuesday. So long. Velocity.